0: Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. But you also had people... Look at that. Listen, I'm watching
1: CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol.
0: Welcome to Yer Na Pessaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Professor Christina Sturkel, who is a professor of sociology at Lewis University in Rome and is also the co-author of The Moralist International, Russia in the Global Culture Wars, alongside Dmitry Uslana. Thanks for joining us, Christina. Thank you for having me. I guess just to begin with, Christina, you've written this book, The Moralist International, about Russia and its role in global culture wars. Could you tell us a little bit about the journey that led you to writing the book?
2: Yes, I think it was an interesting journey because I'm, I'm a sociologist of religion, and I was working on... The Russian Orthodox Church after the end of the Soviet Union, its different involvements with the state and also the changes the church was undergoing. And one point in particular I was looking at was the discourse of the Russian Orthodox Church about human rights. I was basically trying to find out, and that's now 10 years ago, how the Russian Orthodox Church was using human rights in its official documents and dialogues with politics and with other churches in the West. And what I noticed was that the church at one point started using the language of human rights, which was in a way a novelty, because before they had said, well, we don't talk about human rights because they're the product of Western civilization, they're not part of our civilizational cultural context, we don't use the word even. So that changed. They started to use the word. They started to use human rights. They even opened a representation in Brussels and another one in Strasbourg to the Council of Europe. So they started to actively engage in the human rights dialogue process institutions, but in, an very, in a very conservative key. So it was basically, yes, now we talk about human rights, but in order to stop human rights from evolving, stop human rights from including equal gender rights, sexual and reproductive rights, the church started to develop a rather sophisticated language on traditional values and human rights. So this is in a way how I came to the project. I just tried to understand how come and who is helping them doing that so quickly within you a know, few years. How come the, the Moscow Patriarchate is now a champion of traditional values inside Russia and outside Russia if 20 years ago they didn't even want to use the word human rights and they didn't even want to enter into social policies at all.
1: Christina, what was the situation of the Russian Orthodox Church during the period of communist rule and then how did it emerge? What state was it in when it emerged from that era?
2: So during communism, the Russian Orthodox Church was evidently Repressed communist ideology did not have a place for religion, but it was not in that sense actively persecuted. It could operate, so there were institutions operative in inside the Soviet Union. The Moscow Patriarchate was operative. It also had a very active foreign relations department, which we now know was collaborating with the Russian secret service with the KGB. Some churches were were working. People who who Showed that there were religious believers in the Soviet Union had to had to take risks. They usually had disadvantages in their in their professional life. So there was a very, very limited degree of religious freedom. Actually, one could say there wasn't really religious freedom, but the church kind of just you know hung on, and the church collaborated with the authorities. Now the situation started to change already during the nineteen eighties, the period of the Perestroika, when the Soviet authorities started to think about the church as a resource to garner public support and also as an ideological resource to fill a state that was increasingly devoid of ideas because Marxism-Leninism was discredited or people were no longer enthusiastic and interested. So to fill this void with a new new purpose and new ideas, and that was that of the Russian civilization of of the Soviet Union being built on on the past glory of the of the empire. Now then, the Soviet Union collapsed, and in the Russian context, the successor state is Russia, and so the Russian Orthodox Church from the nineties onwards really offered itself to the new uh, newly found Russian Federation as a resource for ideas, purpose, national grandeur. And in order to fulfill that role, the church had a lot of demands from the Russian state. I mean, first of all, they they needed to get all the property back, the churches, the monasteries, the artifacts, everything that had been confiscated by the communists. And they also wanted to get their privileges back. That meant things like having a military chaplaincy, getting the right to be involved in legislative proposals that could involve or touch the church, for example, law and religious freedom. So the church became a very active player. And maybe now just as a footnote, I should say, it's not only the Orthodox church that revived during the post-Soviet period, but also the other religious communities inside the Russian Federation. So also the Islamic community, Buddhist communities, the Protestants, the Jewish community. I mean, there was a general religious revival after the end of the Soviet Union in Russia. What's the
0: relationship between the Orthodox Church and other religions in Russia? I'm thinking also about their relationship with other varieties of Christianity. i I noticed that, uh, for example, some evangelical activity is outlawed.
2: Yes, exactly, because the Russian Orthodox Church very quickly settled on a concept called Traditional religions inside Russia, by which they basically meant religions that have been present on the territories of what's today the Russian Federation for centuries. And that very much included American evangelicals or other groups that were doing proselytization from the 90s onwards. So, this concept of traditional religions allowed the Russian Federation to hark back to an idea of a multi religious Russian. Federation or formerly Russian Empire because of course the Russian Empire was multi religious so we are not talking about orthodoxy as as the state religion or the sole religion we are talking about the multi religious self understanding of the state but this multi religious self understanding is limited it, it has like it, it's historically frozen in with this concept of traditional religions which can include Muslims because they were already there in the past which it can include even sort of pagan religions or, or or spiritualities from the Siberian tribes, but it cannot include other Christian groups that were be, sort of yeah became active in in, in Russia only only after the nineties. So in Russian in, in Russia there are of course other Christian religious communities. There are Catholics, Baptists, Protestants but as you just pointed out, the evangelicals were seen by the by the Orthodox Church as a real threat, and also other groups like Jehovah Witnesses were. They tried really everything to keep them out of the country, to keep them from registering as religious groups, to prevent proselytization or, or missionizing activities. Maybe we can come back to that point because there's a great paradox there. Because as far as they try to keep them out of from their turf as religious competitors, the Russian Orthodox Church has actually taken over a lot of the key themes and concepts and also strategies from American evangelicals.
0: Oh, that was what I was going to ask you about next. It seems like a lot of those, a lot of the ideas that the evangelicals push in America, especially in terms of pushing into the education sphere, seem to have been embraced by the Russian Orthodox Church. I was fascinated by the fact that like, creationism, which is sort of this long-running battlefield, for the religious right in America, sort of only came to Russia within the past few decades.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, I also learned a lot when we were doing the research for this book. And in our book, The Moralist International, we have a whole first part, which we call learning the culture wars. And what we basically describe is a process that started already during the Paris in the 1980s, when people inside the Russian Orthodox Church, but also inside the, at that time, still Soviet establishment, were starting to think about, you know, Christian values in society. But against the backdrop of 70 years of communism and a church that had largely only collaborated and gone along with, you know, Soviet communism, what were those values? What, what should those Christian values actually be at the time? And so there were several things that really worried the public in the late Soviet period. It was the problem of demographic decline. So fewer, fewer children were born, a high rate of divorce, a very high rate of alcoholism, of men sort of abandoning families. And in looking for answers to these troubles, some of the evangelical program and answers sounded very convincing to these Russian officials. Basically saying, well, the problem of divorce has something to do with low morale. The problem of natality has something to do with abortion. And if we only ban abortion, then more children will be born. And in the for, when we wrote the book, we did fieldwork and interviews, also with Russians who who were old enough to remember the, that time. And they said, well, the evangelicals, you know. They, they just had these books and this information material and that that made us aware of what a big problem abortion is and that we need to do something about it or how we should really, you know, pick up a battle against divorce. So maybe kind of inadvertently, Russian conservatives took over a lot of the themes and recipes from the Christian right in Europe that is of Protestant and, and Catholic provenance. So kind of inadvertently, one could even speak about a kind of westernization or colonization by Western Christianity of the orthodox social teaching in Russia.
0: One of the other paradoxes that sort of arises is that you have, you know, this yearning to go back to a better time, which is common across these movements to return to to a tradition. But of course, in the case of Russia, the tradition going back several decades is Stalinism, and it's interesting there are these people who embrace Stalinism but hate communism. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works?
2: Yes, that's a very paradoxical phenomenon that in in this fervent anti-communism, Stalin is kind of excluded and even even sometimes praised as a hero of having preserved Russian traditional values. So that's very paradoxical. Let me say that step by step. So after the Bolshevik Revolution, the religious persec- persecution was very harsh in the 1920s and 30s, and it was also supported by by Stalin during, during the purges of the 1930s. But then during the Second World War, when the Soviet Union had been attacked by Nazi Germany, Stalin called upon the Moscow Patriarchate for support in the war effort, and this is very well documented. Stalin gives the church the permission to elect a new patriarch and a, a certain degree of freedom to open new places of worship. So from the perspective of the Russian Orthodox Church, Stalin is often seen as that figure that rehabilitates the church in the context of the Soviet Union, gives it a little space. But as I said before, this space was extremely controlled. It was one of collaboration, and it continued to be one of repression. But against the backdrop of the 20s and 30s, which were really on the verge of annihilation of of the church in Russia. This, this kind of was taken as a positive sign. The other point is that Stalin took several measures that sort of went along with what we would now say conservative traditional values. Stalin banned abortion. He made abortion illegal in the Soviet Union because of the demographic decline due to the war. So to make birth rates rise again that was revoked eventually but but that that's one of the the measures for which he is praised and and stalin in the 1930s basically purged the communist guard of of the trotskyists of those communists that were more international more revolutionary really i mean he's the one that that settled on this communism inside russia he's a nationalist to a certain extent as much as you can a Soviet, or maybe you would say a Soviet imperialist, nationalist. And and this is what, what he's hailed for. So the narrative then goes that all these Trotskyists and international communists perched by Stalin settled in the West, and that's always where the name of Gramsci is, is mentioned. And, and so now the West is actually more communist than the Soviet Union because it becomes culturally liberal.
1: Christina, in examining the moralist international, you pay – or you make particular reference to something called public morality, and we've had discussion about abortion and education. But what are the other areas that kind of concern public morality? And I'm thinking especially questions of the family and gender and sexuality.
2: Yes, exactly. These are the main topics. So it's family, sexuality, and gender identity. And then education sort of follows from that. And also abortion follows from that. So the, the traditional values agenda that Russia now professes to defend in the world is built around an understanding of the family as a reproductive unit made of a heterosexual couple and their biological offspring sanctioned by, by the church. And everything that deviates from that, that's so single mothers or unmarried couples or same-sex couples, same-sex couples having children, is condemned or is not accepted as legitimate. And everything that threatens that family model, reproductive rights for women, abortion, but also children's rights or public education, everything that opens up this black box family is is, is really condemned and is excluded. And this, this goes even so far as to not admit legislation against domestic violence so the russia famously has has reduced protections of women in cases of domestic violence on the pretext of traditional values and we can only understand these these sort of these policy steps if we understand that for from the conservative viewpoint everything that opens up the black box family is to be rejected so state subsidies for families, state allowances for children or single mothers, you know, public education that you know, gives an education to children that may not be in line with what the parents teach them at home, all of this is a threat. So the idea is really to insulate the family from society.
0: Christina, you mentioned that the first part of the book concerns learning the culture war. Could you tell us a little bit about who was teaching the Russians the culture war?
2: Well in the inside in the book we have the case study of an American NGO called Focus on the Family, which still exists. So the founder of Focus of the Family, Dobson, was invited to the at that time the Soviet Union. His works were translated and read and distributed across the Soviet Union. We have another case study on evangelical groups that were active in the very first years after the fall of the Soviet Union. On, on missions. So they were basically missionizing to gather new, yeah, new members of their communities, but they were also teaching. We have the case study of the World Congress of Families, which was founded with Russian participation in 1995, something very few people know, that this actually this American NGO actually has a Russian founding story. And we discuss the case of a sociologist from the 1950s Harvard sociologist Peterim Sarokhin, who was translated back into Russian and whose writings also influenced a lot the Russian conservatives. So we have several case studies of direct influence of people and texts traveling from the US into the Russian context.
0: Having learned the culture war, Russia then sets out to do the culture war. Could you tell us a little bit about what influence Russia has on culture wars outside of its own borders?
2: Yeah, exactly. So that's the second part of the book, Doing the culture Wars. And we we look at, at uh, this area by, one could say, by venues. So we analyze the Russian Orthodox Church and its interconfessional relations. So trying to understand how the Moscow Patriarchate tries to push its agenda vis-a-vis the Catholic Church and other Christian churches in the world. Then we look at civil society networks, the World Congress of Families that we already mentioned, but also a global homeschooling network where Russia plays an important role. We looked at the Russian foreign policy vis-a-vis the United Nations and human rights institutions. And this part is interesting because there we see a very direct coordination between Russian foreign office, so diplomats, and the church. So this doing the culture wars in the world, maybe I I, I talk especially about that activism vis-a-vis the United Nations, I think it's very clear that Russia is trying to take the leadership in the world of a group of people that are tired of the West telling the rest of the world what they should do in terms of human rights. And and the, the first Russian initiative on the, in the UN that was big on this topic started in 2009. And it was about harmonizing human rights in the world with traditional values. And what does it basically, what did it basically mean? It meant that countries can put a border to human rights claims by saying, well, but that's not according to our traditional values. And of course, we can think of many, to- many topics that are central for human rights claims today that would then be out of question. Think of female genital mutilation in some African countries. Think of underage marriage in 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 some other parts of the world. You know, think of you know, subordinating women to men in, in the family, not giving education. I mean you can you can justify all sorts of things with a claim to tradition. And what's what's noteworthy is that the Russian initiative at the UN, at the United Nations Human Rights Council always garnered majority support. So it was the Western countries voting against it and the other countries voting in favor. Now it didn't have any consequences because voting in a body like the United Nations Human Rights Council doesn't really change anything in terms of policies. But it was a clear sign that Russia was there to to head that part of the world that says, well you Wests, stop bothering us with, you know, your gender issues and human rights, individual rights, women rights We have our own traditional values and and we want to move ahead with that.
1: Christina, the culture wars are often construed or portrayed as being a battle between conservative and progressive values and those progressive values or those conservative values, I should say, being based on some kind of religious tradition. What do you think more broadly is the role of religion in these culture wars and also What role, if any, has the concept of cultural Marxism played in these battles?
2: Now, I think it's very important to see that the culture wars between progressive and conservative groups inside societies do not unfold along the religious-secular divide. So we have religious groups on both sides. We also have religious groups on the progressive side. So the culture wars are really conflicts that run through communities also through religious communities. And I think that that's the first point I want to make. And the second on cultural Marxism, well, that's exactly the point I tried to say before when we talked about Stalin. So the narrative goes that the West is sort of in the hands of cultural Marxists now pushing for liberal progressive values in terms of family, women's rights, children's rights, also environment, Whereas traditional values based on past mores, religion, and autocracy, for which I guess Stalinism and that, for instance, aim at. I mean, to be honest, I, I've i always had difficulties with this focus on cultural Marxism because I think after the end of the Soviet Union, after the end of the Cold War, people going on and on about the danger of communism is really about like kicking around the ball after the game has ended. I mean, it's, it's being used and it's, it has a lot of persuasion, especially in, in former communist countries in central and Eastern Europe as an image of the enemy. I mean, look at what Orban is doing in Hungary, but also look at Poland where conservatives basically claim, you know, look, we got rid of the communists, but now we have, you know, Marxists in the cultural disguise that are telling us what to do. It, it, because this is, I think it's really not the point. I mean, progressive liberal values are very much about equal rights, about individualism. They, it's not really an, a unique, clear genealogy of Marxism. You know, There, there, there are several roots of, of, of liberal individualism, and some of it is actually in, in contradiction with Marxist values. So cultural Marxism is constructed by conservatives as the big enemy. Christina,
0: forgive the pronunciation that I'm about to murder. Could you explain the concept of aggiornamento and what it means in the context of these culture wars?
2: Yeah, aggiornamento. That that was our our nod to the sociologists of religion who are reading the book. termamento is it, it's an Italian word and it was used in the context of the Catholic Church's Second Vatican Council in the nineteen fifties where the Catholic Church made a kind of U-turn from being a solely reactionary force in the world, seeing itself as in, in, in a battle with modernity, to making declarations that were more like, okay, we are ready to live alongside modern society. Among other things, in, in the Second Vatican Council, the Church accepted the pluralism of faiths as, as a natural condition in which the Church was ready to operate. And so aggiornamento means bringing a church teaching up to date, bringing it sort of into conversation with the modern world. Now, of course, we we know that inside Catholicism that was embattled and is still embattled, but nonetheless aggiornamento is a term of sort of moving forward, changing doctrine. Now, the point that we want to make with a conservative aggiornamento is that inside the Russian Orthodox Church we see. Also, a lot of change, a lot of renewal, a lot of taking on new ideas, trying out new strategies, becoming definitely modern and conversant with the modern secular society, but only in view of extremely conservative goals. So sometimes people now think when they, when they think about Russia and its defense of traditional values, that this is all kind of rooted in Russian empire, you know, deep history, Orthodox Christianity, and, and that this is sort of out of the, out of a visceral resistance to modernity because they are old and, and, and traditional. And what we show is that no, actually the language they use, the strategies they employ, That is really modern. It's really up to date. Their conservatism is completely up to date. It can speak to the world. It's using the same language as American evangelicals, as you know, Christian integralist conservatives. They they are in the global culture wars. So that that's what we want to catch with this term conservative aggiornamento, which for who knows the word aggiornamento is a kind of provocation.
1: Christina, the Russian. Church and the Russian state seem to be getting along a lot better nowadays. And that's reflected, I guess, in the changes to the Russian constitution of 2020. But since then, we've also witnessed an invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I'm wondering what kinds of pressures that's placed upon this moralist international.
2: The Russian invasion of Ukraine has certainly disrupted the good contacts which existed between Christian right actors in the West and Russia. I've also seen that looking at the data we used for the book, that now some of the NGOs that had, you know, a Russian board member no longer have the Russian board member, that some of the connections that were evident before through their online work are no longer there. So it's clear that conservative NGOs and networks in the West have kind of tried to take a distance from Russia, at least in on to the outside. I don't think we should elude ourselves that the idea and the ideological attractiveness of the Russian model for the Christian right has ceased. Uh, and we've also seen that in, in some quarters of the political right in Europe, the support for Russia is still is still strong, the war notwithstanding in public opinion but even in politics. I mean, the only country that's openly now supporting, in a way, Russia, and even that not very openly, but Viktor Orbán's Hungary has, has really tried to slow down EU sanctions against Russia, for example. So the Moralist International, I think that's important to see, was there before Russia pretended to become its leader. It's really since the 1990s that the American culture wars have globalized, and it is the United States and American evangelicals that are the drivers behind the globalization of the culture wars. And it is extended into different contexts. It has involved different partners. At one point, it also involved Islamic countries. It involved the Catholic Church very actively, not under this pope, but in the past it did. So I think our book, The Moralist International, Russia and the Culture Wars, has written the beginning and the end of the Russian leading role inside the Moralist International. When we wrote the book, I didn't see that this was the end. I thought that Russia would remain very big. But now I think the war has changed to a certain extent, the cards on the table. But the Moralist International, so a global conservative agenda will continue because it's, it's in a way part of, of, of the polarization and norm protagonism that we see today in the world. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so
0: much for joining us, Christina. If people want to check out the book, The Moralist International, Russia in the Global Culture Wars by Christina Steckel and Dmitry Islana, it is open access, so you can find it if you go to christinasteckel.eu and follow the link to publications. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Well, Andy, that is our show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then. June 2023. To donate, call the station 0394198377 or donate online 3cr.org.au 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical.
1: Oh, who's that from? A quick look won't hurt.
0: What time are you picking up, Kate?
2: Oh, damn it. Saw you on your phone. Licence, please. Pick up your phone while you're driving and it's a $555 fine and four demerit points. Distracted drivers can be caught anywhere, anytime. A message from the TAC. Drive safely for everyone. A 3CR supporter.